How's everybody doing? Well, I can tell you this. I personally believe in the Youth for Jesus program. I, it was 12 years ago this, this summer that I had never heard of a Seventh-day Adventist in my entire life. Never had I heard of them. And I was invited by someone who wasn't in the church. Who they, Somebody in a charismatic church got a flyer in the mail. And they got, went in front of their church and said, Oh, there's a seminar on the book of Revelation coming to town. We ought to go check it out. And so my friend who was in that church, he call, we talked on the phone and he said, Oh, you ought to come. And I had no interest whatsoever in going. But I had nothing to do that night. So that night I ended up saying, Okay, I, I guess I'll go. I went to the meetings. There was a young man by the name of David Asherick speaking. I had never in my entire life heard the Bible opened so clearly, and when I saw that message, it was just revolutionary to me. I saw that the Bible could be trusted. The next night I came back, I came back every single night except for one or two nights because I couldn't make it after work, and uh, it, I, I decided, you know, I saw these things and I saw, this is what the Bible says. I believed in God, this was what the Bible actually revealed, and I thought, I have no choice. To me, there was no option. If this is what the Bible says, I have to follow it. And so at the end of that series, I was baptized. My, I, I made a decision. They, they told me, they, they, all the people who worked in it seemed to go to this school called the Mission College, the Black Hills Mission College. They said, oh, you ought to go to this school. And someone came up and said, oh, are you going to the Black Hills? And I didn't have a clue what that was, and it, and it sounded scary. <laughs> and my, uh, my family, uh, basically, I ended up, I said, God, if you want me to go, I'll go. And the door opened. I had just started my second year of college. And my, I, I, I thought, oh no. You know, I told God I would, I would go. And then I got a phone call saying, oh, it's all taken care of. You can go. And I said, no, I'm not going to go. And it was the hardest decision of my life. I knew my family would not be happy. My family pled with me. They cried. And uh, I ended up going anyway. I left, left the college I was going to. Went. It was the best decision I've ever made in my life. And it was the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. But long story short, I went through the school there. I was asked to become an evangelist. I've been traveling the world for the last 12 years doing evangelistic meetings and seeing scores of people give their life to the Lord and come to the truth as a result of the work that we have been doing. And so I believe in this message. And as, as a result, uh, we were doing evangelism. We were working. We worked in Europe. So we were working with atheists, agnostics, just non-believers. We were working after that in Portland, Oregon, meeting a lot of skeptics. And as we were meeting them, uh, one of the things that we, as I was studying the Bible with them, I had a guy who was an atheist who was a video game designer. He made me a 3D sanctuary. I was sitting down reading Leviticus with him and saying, okay, it's two cubits. And so he's trying to make this thing. And the Lord was blessing as we were working with these skeptics. But one of the things we noticed was that they would say over and over is they'd say, oh, I saw something about that on Discovery Channel. And we thought, man, what if somebody made something that looked like Discovery Channel, but instead of being skeptical, shares our message? And so as, as we were thinking about that, the Lord opened the doors and we began a ministry called Anchor Point Films. And what we do is we do exactly that. We go around to archaeologists, we go around to scholars, theologians, and so forth, and we make documentaries that look like Discovery Channel or History Channel, but instead of being skeptical, they give a reason to believe in the Bible, a reason to believe in Jesus, and the Adventist message. And they're going all over the world. They're using them in Europe in very secular areas. They're using them in the United States. Cole Porters are using them across the United States. Uh, we have doctors getting them out to their patients, dentists to their patients. And it has been, we, this wasn't our purpose. My purpose was I wanted something that I was happy to give out door to door. We just thought this was for me and my friends going door to door. 
but the Lord ended up blessing, and so we, uh, my wife and I, I actually also ended up meeting my wife at the Mission College. That was another perk of going to school. Amen. And so uh, I, I'm just so happy. Now my wife and I are both members of ASI. And so I'll tell you this. When I first went to ASI, the day after I was baptized, the day after I became an Adventist, I went to ASI, and I got to say, I thought it was totally strange. These people had concoctions that could cure every disease known to man. And it was such a strange thing for me. But, you know, actually, honestly, all the Bible workers were very strange to me also. But I had never seen people who loved the Word of God like this. And people who, even though they were so strange to me, actually, Nathan Renner worked with me. I thought he was a strange guy. But, you know, I didn't care. I thought, I want to become just like this guy. You know, the Lord uses strange people like us, right? But before we go into the message this evening, oh, oh, one more thing, one more thing. uh, The message I'm going to share tonight is a little bit on overcoming. My wife and I do seminars. We travel around and do seminars on overcoming habits and addictions. Not only drugs, alcohol, tobacco, and so forth, but just general habits. Everybody has struggled with habits in their life. And our purpose is to give people hope that we can see there is victory in Jesus Christ. And so with our evangelistic meetings afterward, we always do a five-day seminar on overcoming habits and addictions. And I'm going to share with you some principles that here will be more spiritual. In our seminar, we do the, you know, the Bible, science, and health, but this is going to be more biblical tonight. But before we begin, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so excited that you have brought these young people here, that you've used them to change lives. There's people in the group that they've met that I'm sure in years to come will be doing powerful work for you. Lord, I thank you that you use anyone who is willing to be used. Father, I pray right now that you would anoint my lips, that you'd give me the message you would have me to speak. Anything that you would have me to say, give that to me, and anything else, help me to avoid that. Father, may your spirit rain down in a powerful way, in the name of Jesus, amen. Howard Rutledge was an executive officer on a battleship in the Gulf of Tonkin getting ready to go into Vietnam. Now, Howard Rutledge took a plane and he soared up over North Vietnam. And as he was, he was going up over North Vietnam, uh, he was struck, his plane was struck by a missile. And as just before it exploded, he ejected and came sailing down to the earth. But as he did, he was immediately captured and thrown into what would later be known as the Hanoi Hilton or Heartbreak Hotel. He was put into this situation. He was, he was thrown in situations where he was literally face down in human feces, living without food, being beaten, going through an absolute living hell. Seven years he was in this place. Five years he was in solitary confinement. And in this situation, he wrote these words, or he later said about his experience. He said, it is hard It is hard to describe what solitary confinement can do to unnerve and defeat a man. You quickly tire of standing up or sitting down, sleeping or being awake. There are no books, no paper or pencils, no magazines or newspapers. The only colors you see are drab, gray, and dirty brown. Months or years may go by when you do not see the sunrise, the moon, the green grass, or flowers. You are locked in, alone and silent in your filthy little cell, breathing stale, rotten air and trying to keep your sanity. 
He talks about what it's like for people in this situation to try to just be sane when there's nothing to do for years on end. And he goes on to say this. He says, Now the sights and sounds and smell of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. I tried desperately to recall snatches of Scripture, sermons, the gospel choruses from childhood, and hymns we sang in church. How I struggled to recall those scriptures and hymns. I had spent my first 18 years in a Baptist Sunday school, and I was amazed at how much I could recall. Regrettably, I had not seen the importance of memorizing verses from the Bible and learning gospel songs. Now when I needed them, it was too late. I never dreamed that I would would spend almost seven years, five of them in solitary confinement in a prison in North Vietnam. Or that thinking about one memorized verse could have made a whole day bearable. Here is a man who sat alone for five years. And as he looked back on it, as he looked back on the trial that he had gone through, and he, he thought about the fact as he's sitting in there and he's thinking, oh, if only I could remember some of those texts of Scripture. If only I had taken more seriously storing up God's Word in my mind and storing up the songs from church in my mind, I would have something to, to fill my mind with. And then he says, I, I learned in there that one verse could make a day of hell bearable. I read a story about another man who was thrown into the Hanoi Hilton. In this situation, he he didn't know many verses. And one day he was listening. He was also in solitary confinement. And as he was in there, he began listening and he began to hear. He began to hear someone pounding out in Morse code. And what he heard was Psalms 21, verse 1 and 2. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. And his heart thrilled within him and he began to listen and and somebody else typed out another verse and somebody else typed out another and they began to have their collective Bible, all the texts they could remember from their childhood. And this man, Captain James E. Ray, said these words. He said, Scriptures on paper are not one iota as useful as scriptures that are burned into the mind where we can call on them for comfort in the time of need. You see, James Ray never thought he would be in the Hanoi Hilton. Howard Rutledge never imagined he would spend five years in solitary confinement. He, he had no clue. As a young Baptist, he didn't know what the future in this world would hold for him. You see, he wouldn't know. But the reality is, we know the future, right? We know what's coming. We we don't have to be confused as to what is coming upon this world. We know for a fact, we have the prophecies. We have the book of Daniel, we have the book of Revelation. We have the, uh, you know, book, the great controversy. We have last day events that just spells it out real simple for us. We know what the future holds. These young men did not know and did not prepare for what was coming. But God has given us very clear messages so that we wouldn't be confused as to what would come in the future. 
He is calling us to be ready for the last days. He has a people, he is going to have a people who are going to spread his message to the entire planet. We see the signs fulfilling all around us. It's no question. I mean, even secular people notice the world is changing. Something has got to give. But the reality is we know that all these signs are signs of the times, but we know that one has to be fulfilled, and that is that God's people will go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, spreading the three angels' message and the everlasting gospel to the world. And God is calling us to be a part of this group, sharing his message of love and hope. But you know, we also know that amidst this message of hope that there are trials that are coming up in the future. There are severe difficulties that are coming within, we have something we know about called Jacob's time of trouble. We are going to be in troublous times and God is calling his people to be ready. He is calling his people to seek his word, to get to know the Savior. And many times when we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus and we think, well, okay, Jesus went through a time of trouble. He actually went through a time of trouble such as never was since the beginning of the world until this time, nor never will be. Jesus actually went through a greater trial than we will ever be called upon to bear. And so we think about, okay, how did Jesus overcome? And so, well, we look at, we look at Matthew chapter 4, and we see... And Jesus was led up into the, of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and, hung, and hungered. And the devil said unto him, Command that these stones be made bread. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. What did he say? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now we know this. We know that in the time of trial, in the time of temptation, that our Savior Jesus, in these difficulties, he knew he had a word in season to combat the temptations of the, of the devil. And so we, we know that, and we know the second temptation came, and he had a, a scripture. Third temptation came, he had a scripture. He always had a scripture. We notice that no less than 43 times in Jesus' ministry, he either quotes specifically or alludes to specific passages of Scripture, no less than 43 times. So it's clear that Jesus knew the Bible very well, and we say, well, why would he know the Bible? Obviously, he knew the Bible because he happened to be who? God. Now, it makes sense that God would know the Bible, right, since he's the one who inspired the Bible. But if you have your Bibles, look in Luke chapter 2 with me for a moment. Luke chapter 2. Yes, Jesus was God. There's no question. We're looking in Luke chapter 2. Jesus was God. We can see that. The Bible's very clear. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 simply says that he was the mighty God. Revelation chapter 22 says he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. But then we see in Revelation chapter 1, the Bible tells us that Jesus was not only the mighty God of Isaiah 9 6, it says he was the Almighty. The Bible's very clear. But in Luke chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, you, the context is very simple. In the beginning, you have the birth of Jesus. Toward the end of the chapter, you see Jesus in the temple with the doctors of the law. And as he's with the doctors of the law, what happened? He was talking with them, and he knew the Bible better than they did. And directly after that, we see in verse 52, Luke chapter 2, verse 52, the Bible says, "...in Jesus increased in what?" wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So the first one says Jesus increased in what? Wisdom. Now, how much wisdom does God have? 
all wisdom, right? So it would make sense that God would know the Bible since he was the one who inspired it, right? Since God inspired it, yeah, he would know it. But notice what the text says. It says, and he increased in wisdom. But I thought God knew everything. God does know everything. And Jesus was God. But as he became a human being, he actually, what? Became a human being. He had to learn in the same way. Notice, there was a time where he didn't have as much wisdom, so that means as a child, he really was a child. He had to go through life just as we would. He had to learn the scriptures in the same way we would. We're actually told that Jesus learned the scriptures at the knee of his mother from the open scroll of scripture. Jesus knew the Bible not because he was God, not because he remembered, oh yeah, I remember that time back in the desert, you know, when I was helping out the Israelites. No, it wasn't like that, right? He actually was living as a human being and had to read the scriptures, had to learn them just like you have to. He, in these situations, in his times of trial and temptation, as he went through his great time of trouble, it was not that he just, oh, he had, a, you know, he had some extra side that we, we, we weren't blessed to have. Now, yes, we know that he was divine. I'm not, I'm not getting into the whole nature of Christ issue. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is he had to learn just like we have to. He had to search the scriptures. He had to store them up. He knew. Remember, when he was 12 years old, what did he discover? He went to the feast, and he ended up finding, whoa, that lamb, that, that's me. That's, that's me. And he discovered that he was going to be killed. And then he understood the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9. He understood these prophecies. He saw in Daniel chapter 9 that he knew exactly, oh yes, I came, I was baptized on 27 AD, prophecy fulfilled. I am going to be crucified in 31 AD. Jesus knew the exact time of his death. He knew there was a time of trouble coming. Jesus knew that. And he prepared his life for the future that was coming. He took seriously the fact that he knew that prophecy actually was talking about him. Prophecy was not just nebulous and speaking about some people, but it was actually talking about him, and he needed to be ready. He was ready when he went to his baptism. He had texts from Scripture, and the Scriptures that he quoted were all from Deuteronomy. They were all from Deuteronomy, meaning that most of those words, the Israelites could have used the very same promises in the temptations in the wilderness. And they could have used them to find victory. Jesus walked over the same ground, found victory from the same text of Scripture that they could have used to find victory when they were in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness being tempted. He found victory because he clung to his Father through trusting in the Word. The Israelites had not trusted. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Specifically referring to the Israelites. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. It didn't profit the Israelites. Why? It says because it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. So they had the word of God. They had it seemingly as it were on their shelves of their tents. They had it right there. They knew, they had the testimonies. They could even tell you things about them. They could eat right, they could do all these things, but they were not trusting in the Word of God. They were not storing it up in their heart and actually having faith when the times of trials and temptations came. Jesus, in his trial in the wilderness, three times he is claiming victory from the Word of God. You know, when we look at Jesus' life, in every trial and every temptation, we see him turning to God. We see him, you know, there in the wilderness. 
In, in his time of trial, his time of trial in the wilderness, he was ready. He had the word of God to cling to. So it was as if for Jesus, temptation, instead of leading him away from God, actually led him to God. As it says in Hebrews chapter 5, that he was, he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things he what? Suffered. Jesus actually learned to be obedient. In the trials of life, he would cling to the word of God with prayer and supplication and fasting. He was actually clinging to God, trusting in his word in the times of temptation. And so what it was is that Jesus was so united to the word. His life was just an outflowing of the word of God that John, in the book of John chapter 1, just simply calls Jesus what? He calls him the word of God. Jesus is the living word of God. He was so united to his word, God's word, that in every trial, his mind, instead of turning to the temptation, would turn to his heavenly father and to his word. Scientists have done a study with monkeys. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good study, and they come up with crazy things, and I, I'm just going to tell you about it. I'm not saying I condone it, but they did it, and now I get to tell you about it. They did a study, and what they did was they took a monkey, maybe several of them, and what they did was they, they mapped out their brain, meaning with their imaging machines, whatever they are. They're, they're sitting there, and they're looking at the brain, and they began to discover, okay, we can see the monkey, and I'm just going to make up the areas of the brain, but right here, okay, that's the index finger, and right next to it is the middle finger. And so they can actually tell, okay, right now he's moving his index finger. Right now he's moving his middle finger, and they're right next to each other. And so what they did was, uh, and I don't know where they came up with this, they sewed his two fingers together. Not very nice of them, but they sewed his two fingers together. And so what happened is, those two parts of the brain, right next to each other, the pointer finger, the middle finger, they were right next to each other, and they were two different parts. This is not some kind of Masonic symbol, just in case you're wondering. But nevertheless, so they, they were right next to each other, right? And as they were right there, uh, they could see, okay, middle finger, index finger, middle finger, index finger. They could see what's moving. Well, when they sewed them together, those two portions of the brain map in time actually fused together and became just one part of the brain. And so scientists have discovered that our brains are elastic, they're changeable. They used to think they were changed less, now they're discovering they can be changed. And so they saw these two parts become one, and so scientists coined the term, things that fire together, wire together. Things that fire together, wire together. So what would happen, because they couldn't do anything but move those two fingers together, what did they do? Well, they ended up wiring together in the brain of that monkey. Very interesting. Now, we also see, I think back on my life, I used to be, I have, I have an addictive personality. When I, didn't, I didn't know that, you know, my, my dad's always been a drinker, my mom smokes, and so as a kid, uh, you know, they were always doing those things in the house. I didn't like the smell of smoke, and I didn't like the taste of alcohol. But I remember, and I never wanted to smoke, but... One day, my dad decided to give me a cigar. The, you know, all the guys were over, so I smoked my first cigar. And very rapidly, I became hooked on cigars. And I got to the point over time where, now before that time, I had never associated stress with smoking or tobacco. I, I never associated the two. They were two different realms. They, they had nothing to do with each other. But over time, with this, uh, with this addiction, what ended up happening was I got to the point where any time a stressor came, immediately my brain went to what? tobacco. So what ended up happening, those things that began to fire together began to what? They began to wire together. 
So they become, you know, just a straight shot from one to the next. So anytime stress came, stress immediately goes to tobacco. Or for others, it may be stress goes to anger or whatever. But those things that begin to fire together end up wiring together. Well, the scientists later came in, and what they did was they took that same monkey, and they took the two fingers, and they took a scalpel. And as they took the scalpel, what they ended up doing was they took the scalpel and ended up cutting the two fingers apart. And then over time, that, remember, one portion, that one brain map area, once again, went back to two areas. And so scientists uh, have coined the term, things that fire apart, what? Wire apart. Very simple. So now think about this for a moment. So what happened was, I, in, in the beginning, you know, uh, stress and, and, and smoking had nothing to do with each other, but they began to wire together because that, that action, I kept going to that, it became a habit. And, and we know, we've been told, what, that thoughts work out what? Actions, repeated actions form habits, and habits form character. So our thoughts, that we think about something enough, they become an action. Once we've done that several times, it becomes a habit, and that habit becomes our character, and it becomes so hard to break our character or our habits. We try to change them, but we always end up stumbling back into the same actions. God actually wants to change our mind. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22 through verse 24, the Bible says that you put off. It says we are to put off the former conversation or the former lifestyle with its deceitful lusts. And then the next verse in verse 23 says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then it says, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The texts basically say this. It starts off by saying, you need to be changed. You need to put off the old areas of life. And then it says, how are you going to be changed? It says, you will be changed by the renewing of your mind. And then it says simply, now you need to put on the new man, which is renewed into his image, into the image of our Savior. So basically what happens is, many times what happens is we try to avoid the old ways. I, I, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit doing this. I'm going to quit looking at dirty stuff. I'm going to quit listening to this music. I'm going to quit doing these things. And then we end up falling back into it even worse. Because what we end up doing is we don't end up changing or actually filling ourselves with something better. Right? You remember the old parable of the house that is swept and clean and the demon leaves. But what does he end up doing? Because the house is not filled, seven demons even worse than himself come back and fill that place. What happens is we need to, yes, we need to put off the old ways, the old lifestyle, but it says we need to be renewed in our mind and we need to put on the new man. You see, Jesus, when he was on earth, when his temptations came, instead of just, you know, uh, just going on with life, he always clung, he clung to the word of God. We can have the very same experience. Just with this, now think about this. For me, stress used to continually bring me back to smoking. I would quit for a while, and I would throw the pack of cigarettes away a few days, and a stressful event would come, and when stress came, my brain went back. Those things that had been firing together were wired together, and so I would go back to it. But imagine this. What happens then when that temptation comes again, and I went to this evangelistic meeting, and David shares about this text, two texts in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that tell us, they say simply that your body is the what? temple of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, if you destroy God's temple, he is going to destroy you. And I thought that was pretty heavy. 
And so seeing that, I thought, wow, God actually cares about my body. He actually wants to take care of me to take care of my body. I don't, it's not just me that I'm sick of coughing all the time, sick of having a sore throat or whatever, but, but God actually wants me to change. And so what ended up happening, I saw God's word. And so several different things in my life, I, I, I began to realize, wow, you know, I struggle with this, I struggle with that, I struggle with this. And so what happens is, what, what temptation comes, and as the temptation comes, now typically I would go back to the cigarettes or typically I would get angry or typically I would do whatever. And so in this situation now, I realize, no, God has a new plan for my life. And so God's, God's you know, word begins to flash into my mind. In the beginning, it was hard to memorize, so I'd, you know, I'd, write it, I'd have to have it always in my pocket or whatever. And so as the temptation would come, I would say, Father, you told me. You, you told me, Father, that you know, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, you're going to give me the victory. And so now when the temptation comes, slowly, instead of my mind going to the things of this world like cigarettes, the mind begins to go to God's Word. Jesus, in times of trial, every time the temptation, instead of going to the world, he would always go to God's Word. And so as the temptations are coming, guess what? Those things that once were firing together, I'll give you an example. We, in our overcoming seminar, we talk to people, we talk to homosexuals. We talk to people who have been abused. We talk to people who haven't been through all those things. But I know that some young ladies or young men who have been abused physically or sexually by their uncle, if they just hear the word uncle, just this negative feeling comes over them. Why? When I think of uncle, I don't necessarily have these, you know, terrible, painful thoughts, but because of their memory, those things, they, when they hear uncle, they sometimes associate it with the pain and the suffering that uncle has brought upon them. And so as their life goes on, it's, it's just such a burden of the past, these things that have happened to them, and because those things have been firing in their mind, it's wired together. Uncle in pain are now a part of their life. God doesn't want us to have to live with this burden, this pain all throughout our lives. He wants to give us victory. He wants to help us to truly forgive, to move on in life, and actually, actually get to the point where we can somehow love the person who has abused us. Could that be possible? Jesus, as he went to the cross, as he was being abused... Now, our typical nature would want to bring us to the point where we'd hate the abuser, but Jesus said some simple words. He said, Father, why? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. God can actually bring us to the point where we, we forgive. We find victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we get to the point where actually we can care and love for the person who has hurt us in the past. Jesus was so tight with the Word of God. It was connected in his brain. It was a part of who he was. The Word of God was filling him. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Jesus, the word was dwelling in in him, so he was so close to the Father. He was clinging to the Father in times of temptation. So those things that were firing together, any time of trial, it says that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. In those things, they actually, temptations brought him closer to God. His brain was actually changed. We don't think about the fact that our sins change our brain. They actually affect us. But also, when we begin to come to Christ and we're changed, so now the temptation comes. Now, now I want a cigarette, right? So I, want, I, I don't really struggle with it anymore because it's been years, but when, when I want the cigarette, so then I go to God and I say, Father, you, you said there had no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13. Father, you told me that you will make a way for me to be victorious. You told me that you will give me the victory, as it says in 1 Corinthians 57. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory. Father, I trust in you that you will actually give the victory. And so now when the temptation comes, we can get to the point where instead of stress leading us to cigarettes or stress leading us to anger or stress leading us to sadness or whatever, we can get to the point where stress actually turns us to the Savior. And those things that begin to now fire together begin to wire together. Which means, like the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it tells us that we can become new creatures new creatures in Jesus Christ, find total victory through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus had to learn the Scriptures in order to find victory. And in what many people don't know is that, yes, three times, three times in the desert, Jesus quoted Scripture to find victory in his time of trial. But the Bible also reveals that Jesus, when he went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, there were seven statements that he made. Theologians call them the seven words of Jesus on the cross. While he's making those seven words, those seven statements, three of them were quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus, in his great time of trial, he knew the future. He knew the future prophesied that he was going to go through this time of trial. He knew he was going to die. He knew this would come, and in that he had prepared. And as he was upon the cross, three times he is quoting the word of God. He quotes from Psalms chapter 22. He quotes from Psalms chapter 31 verse 5. And as he's quoting the word of God, he's even finding comfort in the scriptures that were written to prepare him for the last days. The Bible says these things were written for us, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. This book has been written for us. Now you're saying, Chad, this, so we're just preparing for the last days. We're maybe storing up some verses in our head for the last days. The reality is, is the trials today prepare us for the trials tomorrow. The, the struggles you, you, you deal with today, if, if you're having the Word of God, if you're storing it up in your mind, if it's becoming a part of your brain, a part of who you are, these are preparing you for tomorrow. They're preparing for you for the next day, and they're preparing you for the very end of time. God is calling us to be clinging to His... He's calling us to cling to His Word, to, to have it there in the times of trial. You know some of the things you struggle with, you're tempted with. And so God is saying, listen, I have verses for you. I have things to prepare you. I have the preparation for tomorrow for you. And you say, I'm not very good at memorizing. That's okay. You can write it down. You can stick it in your pocket. Anytime you could pull it out. You can have it there with you. And, but somebody might be saying, well, you know, that's good for Jesus. Uh, you know, that's good for some other people. That's good for real spiritual people. Uh, but, but for me, I don't know. I just, I just don't think that's my thing. I'm not saying, we're not just talking about uh, promise verses. I want to be very clear. Promise verses, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, whereby are given to us, in verse 4, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The Bible says we're given promises to escape the corruption of the world through lust, and it helps us to partake of God's divine nature. It helps us to overcome. God's given us these promises. He has given us these things to totally change us. Now, it is not as if we just claim the promise, right? We just say some simple promise like, you know, we see a woman who's scantily clad, wearing very little clothing, and, and men's carnal heart immediately makes them want them to look where they shouldn't be looking, right? 
But, and we say, well, God, you said in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25, let thine eyes look right on and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Look where you ought to look, not where you ought not to look, right? Now, we could do that, and sometimes you may even quote a verse, and, and you don't find the victory. What happened? It's not a magic trick. It is not as if you just quote the verse and temptation disappears. The reality is we see the Israelites. Remember, unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto the Israelites. But the word preached didn't profit them. Why? So they had the word. We have the word. But the word didn't profit them because it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. They weren't clinging to the promises of God by faith. They had them. They had the promises and they even had probably many of them memorized. Many more than we do probably. But they weren't clinging to the promises by faith. Coming to the Father saying, Father, I trust you. I don't trust myself. I don't trust my feelings. Father, I trust the fact that you promised to give me victory and I know that you can give me victory. And as the more we do this, what ends up happening is that those things that are firing together, God's word in the temptation, God's word in the trials will begin to wire together. Before God's word and the trials were two separate things, but they can so be brought together that through communion with Christ, we are told sin will become hateful to us. He can give us the ultimate victory. Notice this quote. In, I, this is one of my favorite quotes. We are told... We are told in Gospel Workers, page 109. Think about this for yourself. They do not watch and pray, lest they enter into temptation. If they would watch and pray, they would become acquainted with their weak points, where they are most likely to be assailed by temptation. With watchfulness and prayer, their weakest points can be so guarded as to become their strongest points, and they can encounter temptation without being overcome. Imagine right now the worst part of your character, the worst part of who you are. Imagine what it is. I mean, I mean, just think. You don't need to shout it out. But just think. What is the worst part about who you are? If you can't think of anything, it's pride, right? <laughs> but, now think about this. Think of the worst thing. I'm guessing most of us, I can think of several things. But think of the worst thing. We are told that through watchfulness and prayer, through clinging to God... That our weakest points not only can be overcome and, and, you know, we find victory, but it says your weakest points can become your strongest points. Is that not good news, yes or no? That is good news. God says he will give the victory. Jesus, three times on the cross, he's quoting scripture. The the scripture is just part of who he is. It, It is living and active in his life. And it is meant to be living and active in God's people at the end of time. We are told this in the Review and Herald from 1890, God will flash the knowledge obtained by diligent searching of the Scriptures into our memory at the very time when it is needed. But if you neglect to fill your minds with the gems of truth, if you do not acquaint yourself with the words of Christ, if you have never tasted the power of His grace in trial, then they cannot expect the Holy Spirit will bring His words to their remembrance. You see what that says? We can hope that in the last days some miraculous thing will happen that we're going to overcome. Oh, I wish I would have done it. These men did not know as they went off to war this is what the future had in store. We know what the future has in store. We know for a fact if we are faithful and spread the message to the entire world, we are going to live through a great time of trial and God is telling us we need to be ready. We need to prepare. We need to prepare today. We need to be storing up the word of God in our minds and in our hearts. David himself said what? He said, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not, what? 
sin against you. He said, wherewithal shall the young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your word. It's the word that will give victory, trusting in the one who gave the word. God is calling us to be faithful at the end of time. He is calling us to cling to his word. Corey Ten Boom. She was a, a young lady in the Netherlands during the Second World War as the Nazi Gestapo came in. And as they, as they were you know, making their way, when she was a child, she had a terrible fear. She thought, what if? What if God calls me to be a martyr? I don't have enough faith. And she went to her father and she said, Dad, I, I don't think I have enough faith to be a martyr for Jesus. And her, her wise Dutch father said to her, Corey, when we go into Amsterdam, when... When do I give you the money to get on the train? Do I give it to you three days before? She said, no, you give it to me right before. And as she heard that story, she thought, wow, God is going to give me. If, if he calls me, he's going to give me the victory at that time, but we need to be preparing. Corey Ten Boom was over in Africa in a country that had, it, the government had just been shifted to another government. And three days before, they had called uh, a sect of Christians into the government office to be registered. When they got there, they were executed. The next day, another group were called to the government office, and same thing happened. They also were executed. Third day, same thing. Fourth day, they were systematically executing the Christians of this African country. As this was happen, happening, Corey Ten Boom came to a church there, and she began to speak. In this church, you had you know, people sitting on wooden benches, wooden walls. You have naked light bulbs sitting there with the bugs flying around them. And as she's speaking, she notices nobody's paying attention. Nobody cares about what she's talking about because they're all looking around and she can see it with their eyes. As they look around, they're, they're thinking, is, is he next? Is she next? Am I going to be the next one to die? And as she's thinking these things, as, as, she's going, as they're thinking these things, she looks at them and she tells them the story that her father had told her when she was a child. That if God calls you to be a martyr, he will give you the strength when the time comes. And when they began to hear that story, their eyes lit up, they began to smile, they began to look around at each other. As they began to look around, smiles became, came across their faces and they began to sang, sing that old song. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Corey discovered, she discovered that later that week, half of that congregation was killed. She discovered that shortly after, the rest of the congregation was killed. She said these words, <clears throat> But I must tell you something. In, in the context of all this in 1974, she said, But I must tell you something. I was so happy that the Lord used me to encourage these people. For unlike many of their leaders, I had the word of God. I had been to the Bible and discovered that Jesus said he had not only overcome the world, but to all those who remained faithful to the end, he would give a crown of life. How can we get ready for the persecution, Corey Ten Boom says, who had been in a concentration camp herself? She says, how can we get ready for the persecution? First, we need to, be, we need to feed on the Word of God. Digest it. Make it a part of our being. This will mean disciplined Bible study each day as we not only memorize long passages of Scripture, but put the principles to work in our lives. For a woman who had gone through a great time of trouble, she knew the necessity in the trials of having God's word to strengthen, with, strengthen us in times of temptation. 
Friends, God is calling us to find the victory. This is the time. We, we, we don't want to wait for another generation. We don't want to wait another few years until we can, you know, have the next, uh, you know, business boom or whatever it may be or, or things perk up in the economy. What are we waiting for? God is calling us to overcome now, to be a part of the people, to share this message through the entire world. But he needs people to be overcomers through Jesus. He needs us to be clinging to the world, letting go of the things of this earth, saying, Jesus, whatever you want from me, that's what I want for myself. Jesus is calling us to be victorious in him. And maybe there's someone here who has been struggling with a sin. Maybe there's someone who's been struggling with anger, lack of forgiveness for what someone has done to you in your past. Maybe there's someone here who's struggling with pornography and lust. Somebody else may be struggling with greed. You're thinking about business all the time. It's crowding out your relationship with Jesus Christ. Somebody else may be just struggling with the fact that you just don't care anymore. You don't care about spiritual things anymore. God is calling us to be victorious. He's calling us to be a part of his last day people, and he's calling us to find the victory. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to say, God, whatever it is, whatever it is, I want to let it go. Today, right here, right now, this Friday evening, this Sabbath night, Father, I want to let go. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads just now. Maybe there's someone here right now, some temptation, some sin has been ruining your life, ruling your life. Nobody knows, maybe, but you know, and God is calling you, saying, this is the day, this is the time to let go. If there's someone here this evening who says, Father, I want to find victory and I want to find it this evening, would you just raise your hand just now? All heads are bowed and all eyes are closed. Is there someone here who wants to raise their hand? I want to challenge you. As our heads are bowed and all eyes are closed, is there someone here who wants to take the challenge to say for the next two months, I want to memorize one text of Scripture per week. And I want, to, I want it to be practical so that in times of trial, in times of joy, whatever situation, I have a text both for my help, for I, my admonition, and maybe even for the blessing of others. Is there someone says for the next two months I want to memorize eight verses, one per week in the next two months? Is there anybody that would like to make that commitment? Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we all have things in our lives. We have things that have fired together and wired together, and and sin is just a part of who we are. It is a part of the very core of our brains, but Father, we're asking, we are asking that you break these things, that you come in with your heavenly scalpel, with the sword of the Spirit, which Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 says is the Word of God. That, Father, you would bring that word of God to sever apart those fingers, as it were, that you would separate these things, and then you would unite our mind in the times of trial and the times of temptation, that instead of fleeing to the sin, that we would be so connected to our Savior through prayer, through Bible study, and through your promises in our mind, that instead we would flee to you and find victory. Father, we want to be a people that are victorious through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us to store up gems of truth for these last days, that we will overcome as our Savior overcame. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. 
or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.